God, I thank you for all that you're doing in our individual lives and in the lives of, of this church collectively. Lord, as a body, I thank you for what you've done, um, Lord, just in four short months. And God, we're so thankful uh, to see you working and to see your hand um, clearly leading in direction. Lord, I just pray that you would continue to be um, guiding us, reminding us. And Lord, I pray that your, would, your word would be that, that lamp to our feet, that light to our path. Lord, as we want to take step after step, we want to go forward. And God, I pray that your word would light the way for us. And so God, as we gather regularly and study um, what you have to say, Lord, give us clarity on how this applies to us, both individually and as a body. And give us direction. Give us wisdom. Give us discernment. Lord, we want to better serve you, and so we thank you for the opportunity that we get today to spend time in your word. Speak clearly by the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, in between talking about the old garments and the new garments, um, do you ever look at people who are living out their faith and suddenly realize that you're not wearing the same garment that they are? Uh, sometimes I'll look at, and not, not in a way that's like covetous, but like I, I really wish that I had their life, but like you look at people who live exemplary lifestyle, and you're like, that's not really me. You know, I, I like to read about old missionaries. You know, I like to read about guys that, that brought, you know, through the power of the Lord, brought times of revival, um, not only in our country, but in other countries. And it's crazy to see the amazing things that God has done through people's lives. And you just kind of look at their lives and they're like, man, you know, I want the faith of a guy like George Mueller, you know, who, who just prayed and, and the Lord just provided and provided. It's like, I want to pray with power like that, not so that he'll give me what I want, but so that I can do things for him. And, and sometimes I look and it's like, I don't feel like I'm wearing the same, you know, clothes. I feel like we're all on the same team, but I'm wearing a different uniform. You know, and it's like, and, and a lot of times that will lead to a place of condemnation for me, which it shouldn't. What it is, is me wearing old garments and wanting to wear the new ones that are in my closet. They're in my closet, in Christ. Those things that Christ has given us to wear are there and for us. They're his provision for us. We can wear them whenever. And, and I want to remind us of this as we get going, because sometimes we can look at these things and we look at the past, like the last couple studies, we look at the things we're supposed to put off and we're like, I'm still wearing those. You know, and then we look at the list of things that we should be wearing. You're like, those are in my closet. You know, and we start feeling condemnation over this. I want you to remember this. What God has given us in Christ to wear, the new garments, the new man, the new self, is God's provision. It is God's provision for you. It is nothing that you make your, on your own. This is nothing that's being made for you by a friend. This is nothing that you can go to the old sewing machine if people still use those and, and you know, make yourself something. This is nothing that you can fabricate. God provided this for you. It's his provision. It's in your closet as a Christian. All you have to do is wear it. All you have to do is put these things on. God has given us a task on this earth as his children. He's the one who will outfit us for that task. He's given us the outfit to wear for that task. Hudson Taylor said it so well, and I really hope this encourages you. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. If God has called you to do something, he is going to supply you to do it. And I caution you at looking, how he, at, looking at how he's doing it in other people's lives. Only because it's good to be inspired by that, but oftentimes we expect him to do it the same way for us. We look at the things that we want to see God do, and you're like, surely he will do it like he's doing it for this gentleman. 
Here's the thing. God's going to get his work done, but here's the thing. If he wants you to do it his way, you have to rely on his supply to do it in your life. You have to walk with him in your life through that, and we know what God expects of us, but your path is going to look different. The road that you walk is going to look different. We can't look around and be guilty of the sin of comparison. Now, we want to see God work. That should inspire us to look to him, but it should never make us dejected that God isn't using us in the same way as he's using somebody else. We wear the same garments, but God will lay out a different path. And so it's important to keep these lines clear as we're talking about these really key core theological points. And so what we're going to see this morning is that we're going to be encouraged to put on what God has supplied for us. God has given us these things. We need to wear them. And it's not good works of our own design. None of us can boast about it. So Colossians chapter 3, we'll pick up in verse 12. Paul continues on and he says this, Therefore, as God's chosen ones, who's the most likely candidate if I was to ask you who the chosen one is? Who would you say? Biblically speaking, I was like, who's the chosen one? That would be my answer, right? I would think, Jesus. Jesus is the chosen one. He's the Messiah. You're like, Anakin. Wrong. But like, if you, if you think about it, it's going to be Jesus if you're thinking biblically. It's like, well, I think of Jesus. But how did he address us here? Therefore, as God's chosen ones. He's referring to the church, to this church in Colossae, which refers to us as well because we are the church. And he says, as God's chosen ones. Why would he say something like that? Why would he assert and say, why is he calling me a chosen one when Jesus is clearly the chosen one, right? I don't often think of myself in this way. However, Paul is building off of verse 11 from last week where he says, in Christ, Christ is all and in all. In Christ, Christ is all and in all, meaning this, if you are in Christ, you are chosen just as much as Christ is chosen. In Christ, you are chosen, and so we are chosen ones, meaning that we're dealing with imputed righteousness. That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about the imputed righteousness of Christ that was given to us. He took our sin, he took our filth, he washed us clean, and he gave us his righteousness, which means that now God sees us just like he sees Jesus. Do you think it's any coincidence that Paul, before he talks about what we're supposed to be wearing, identifies us in this way? He goes, before you wear any of the things I'm about to tell you to put on, before you go to the closet, here's what you need to know about yourself. You are chosen as much as Christ is chosen because Christ is in you and you are in him. Isn't that awesome? We need to hear that because so many times we're trying to put on all the clothing and we're like putting God's robes over our filthy rags. We're like, oh, no, no, I got to keep this thing. or I got to do this myself. or I got to find a way in my flesh. No, understand this. In Christ, you are chosen. In Christ, you are not only chosen, but what else does he say there? You are holy and dearly loved. Just as much as Jesus is holy, he has given us his holiness. Just as much as he was dearly loved by the Father, we are dearly loved by the Father. If you want to know how much the Father loves the Son, read the Gospels. If you want to know how much the Son loves the Father, read the Gospels. It's all about being loved by the Lord. And here's the point. He has given us all of this in Christ. That has completely changed our status. This verse is identity. This is who we are. If we come to the table in our dirty rags, we have no excuse in Christ. That's why Paul emphasized before, take this stuff off. Get rid of it and don't put it back in the closet. Burn it. I don't know what happened 
But a friend of mine yesterday, um, his wife went to some kind of sale and bought this this really crazy robe garb thing, you know, that, that was like, it was this garment. And, and she she thought it was beautiful or whatever. Well, then she posts a video of her husband actually burning it in a fire pit in their backyard that evening. And I was looking, I was like, what a beautiful picture for tomorrow morning. You know, we thought that we looked so good in those, those old garments, but uh, it's like God's just taking them. He's out, out back having a good old, you know, campfire with them. You guys, we are loved by the Father. We are holy in Christ. We are chosen in Christ. You guys, since we've been given this provision by God through Jesus, now that we understand who we are, now that we have this new identity in Christ, what do we wear? What do I wear? You know, like you come and you look at, you look at, your, your, you look at your, your closet, and here's the thing. I, we talked about the old garments last week. Those are gone. So what do we put on now? What does it look like? And these are the things that he's going to list, and I want you to notice this before we get into the list. These things should be evident to the church first and then the world. These things should be evident to the church first. Why? Because we're family. Because we're unified. Because we're one body. Which means that all of these attributes should be visible by the church in each other and noted about us on the whole before the world even sees them. Now, this is very convicting stuff because people in your family know your problems. And, and I don't know about you guys, but the, the hardest time that I have getting along with people is usually family get-togethers, you know? And it's because we know more things. We know things about each other. Someone's like, yeah, well, I did this. I'm like, yeah, well, I've known you since you were born, <laughs> you know? Or you see them trying to impress the latest, you know, girlfriend or whatever when they bring up, yeah, well, and then I did this. They're like, no, you didn't. You tripped and you fell on your face. <laughs> and then I drug you home. You know, like, they, they, there's all of these things. And so we have these issues with family because we know each other. We're in close proximity to each other. The wounds, the sores, they're open. But here's the thing. These things that he's about to name about us, to say that these are the things we should be wearing in Christ, they have to be noted amongst ourselves, amongst the family first, before the world can notice them. And we're going to talk about why later on. But let's look at the first thing that he gives us. He says, you should be, you should put on, compassion. Put on compassion. Uh, it literally means showing pity or mercy to the people around you. Showing pity or mercy. Genuine care for each other. There is no self-focus that is not sin-related in the body. If we are self-focused, that's a sin problem. Compassion is something that should be noted amongst believers, something that we wear, that we care about each other. Are we doing this? Do we notice this about ourselves? Is this something that we see evident in us? That's one of the new articles of clothing we should be wearing, one of the new garments. He continues, he says this, you need to be compassionate and you need to be kind. This is really interesting to me because kindness is a little bit more than you imagine. Josephus, the Jewish historian, he used the same word, the Greek word for kindness, as he wrote about his description of Isaac, the son of Abraham. And the reference was him talking about, in Genesis 26, 17 through 25, he talked about Isaac, who was the man who dug wells and gave them to others because he wouldn't fight about them. That's a little bit more than just saying something nice about somebody. If you think about it, what's our definition of kindness a lot of times? You look pretty, you know, or um, 
good job on that test. You know, like there's just, I mean, it's, it, that's like a compliment. But a lot of times when I think of kindness, I think of just like saying nice things to people or, or opening a door. I will show this person a kindness and open the door for them, you know, and then they'll take my place in line. But if you think about this, <laughs> it happened this week, but, but if you're like, if you think about this, you guys, Christian's like, let it go, Mike. You're supposed to let it go. This is, this is what we're talking. See, I'm still struggling with wearing those old underpants. I'm going to figure this out. I'm just going to put on the stuff that God's put in my drawers. Anyway, you guys understand this. Like, when you're thinking about kindness, think about that example of Isaac. Isaac dug wells in the desert. That was a difficult thing to do, to provide water for his flocks. And when someone came along and took that well, he didn't fight over it. He gave it to them. He didn't dispute over it. That's the kind of kindness that is referred to this word. He's saying this, be the type of person who doesn't fight over things, who just gives them up. Be kind in a way that isn't looking out for your own good, saying, you know what, that's a blessing to you. You can have it. How possession-oriented are we? How this is my right. How entitled can we be at times with, no, this is my thing. You can't have it. I worked hard for this. Get your own. You've never said that in your house. Get your own. You know? <laughs> my wife has a problem. <laughs> She's laughing because she knows where I'm going with this. She is a chronic food stealer. Any of you guys have this? Let me see your hands. How many of you guys, your wife steals your food and, you, and your, your, your drink, whatever you have? All right, there's like three of us in the room. So here, here's the thing. The other guys are like, I sit on the other side of the table. She'd have to be Inspector Gadget to get it from me. Here's the thing. She takes everything from me. Any food I have, my food always looks better. Whatever I'm having to drink always looks better. She just takes it all the time. Here's the thing. God is saying to me, give it to her. <laughs> it's not yours. I mean, that's a very practical thing. You're like, I don't really understand the well digging thing. You can understand giving up your soda pop, right? You can understand doing that. There are in the practical ways of life. This has turned into a marriage group. In the practical things of life, do you understand that we are to be kind towards one another, giving up things that we consider to be our own? It's an earmark of our belief. It's us wearing the new garments. We can't be selfishly motivated. We can't be me people anymore. We are part of a body. And if you do it for your spouse, you should do it for your church. I mean that. If you're going to be kind to your spouse, if you're going to be kind to people in your family, you're going to be kind to your church. A lot of this stuff starts at home. A lot of this stuff starts there. And we cannot be hypocritical. We cannot be hypocritical about these things. Don't expect to create this kind of change in your church if you're not doing it at your house. It starts there. It starts on the home front where it's the most difficult. We are to be compassionate. We are to be kind. And then he says, put on humility. That kind of goes in line with this. Think about humility in this way. It's both vertical and horizontal. We're humble before God because he created us. He made us. He designed us. He called us. He saved us. We, I think that it's relatively easy speaking inside of the, the context or the framework of the church to say, you should humble yourself before God and be like, yes. I agree. You should humble yourself before other people. Ooh, I'm so much better than they are. <laughs> That's what we think. I mean, for proof, let me ride around on the freeway with you for a while. You know, like, that's, that's just who we are. We naturally think that we're better than other people in the flesh, 
But he says this, vertically, we humble ourselves before God. He created us, he saved us, but we are also humble in relationship to other people. When we clothe ourselves in humility, that affects our relationship with others. And and here's the thing, as a church, this is so vital for us to understand that we wear the humility that God has given to us. Bob, you're texting me during service. (laughs) It pops up, I said, Bob Kaczynski has just texted you. I'm like, oh, heresy. No, here's the thing. (laughs) He's like, I will not be humble. No, I'm just kidding. He's not saying, (laughs) I'll take that out of here. Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm trying. No, but here, here's the thing. <laughs> oh, you guys are awesome. Okay, so here's the thing. We're all created in the image of God, yes? We're all created in the image of God, yes? Okay, good. Who are you better than? If we're all created in the image of God and Jesus died on the cross for every single one of us, who are you better than? No one. Guys, we're all on the same ground, saved by the grace of God. And so immediately, this gives us this level standing with other people where we care about them. If we're being compassionate, if we're being kind, and we have a humble attitude towards each other, think about how many times our pride and our arrogance just causes so many problems at our homes or in the church because we actually feel entitled to something. We feel like we should be treated better. And Paul is about to remind the church in Rome that they're all parts of the same body in Romans chapter 12. And he says this in Romans 12, 3. For by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly. As God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. I love that instead, think sensibly. Because I connect it directly to what he said before. Don't think higher of yourself than you ought to think. Instead, think. Think about it for a minute. How many times do we mistreat people because we're not thinking? We're not thinking about it. This is where I just associate, as we talked about last week, James chapter 1, when he says, listen, in James 1.19, he says, everyone should be what? Quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. He goes, you need to listen and, and how often are we quick to speak, slow to listen, you know, or wait, I was going to do it right in my head and I said it wrong. How often are we slow to listen, quick to speak and quick to anger? And here's the problem. That is an arrogant or prideful response. If we're humble, do you know what naturally happens? If we recognize who God is and who we are in relationship to each other, that we naturally become those who listen because we care about people, and then we speak slowly because we don't want to offend them, we want to win them to Christ, and then we just get angry a lot less quickly. How many times are we the source of our own anger? Are we the cause for that situation escalating? You know how many times I got frustrated in conversation because I said something stupid, and then I get mad about it? It's crazy. We shouldn't think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. We need to adopt this humble attitude that represents Jesus. Jesus wasn't noted as being a prideful, strong-willed, pushy person. Jesus was noted as being humble, meek, lowly. He set that example for us. If he was deserving of all honor and all glory and all praise, and he took that position, we got to find a way to get below. we got to find a way to get down there. One thing of note, 
And I challenge you guys to look at your New Testament for this because it's an interesting study to do. Notice in the New Testament how often it talks about us humbling ourselves as opposed to God humbling us. God's given us every reason to be humble. And how many times is it said to the church, therefore, humble yourself. You ought to humble yourselves. Humble, humble, humble. But it's in reference to us choosing that position because you realize that in pride we're choosing wrongly, and that's sin. But God has given us every reason, and I've heard and I've prayed this, Lord, just humble me. I already have. Are you going to take your rightful position, or are you going to keep standing up trying to get praise for yourself? God gives us this choice to make ourselves low. Oh, he will give us situations that help us realize just how wretched we are and that we need him, that we're loved by him, that we're chosen by him, and to come back to that place of finding our all in all in him. But we have to choose humility. He continues on. He says, put on gentleness. Uh, the Greek word is praotes. It's interesting. Aristotle defined it as the happy midpoint between too much and too little anger. It's not bad. It's the happy medium between too much and too little. We understand. We talked about the misuse of anger, the anger that needs to be put off last time. Last week, as, as Paul talked about that, he talked about anger. He talked about malice. Uh, he talked about wrath. And what's interesting is that we know that it's appropriate to be angry about some things. God is angry about some things. There are things that happen in this world that anger God that are sin-related. God is not for everything. God hates certain things. We're like, oh, God is incapable of hate. No, he hates sin. God absolutely hates sin. As a holy God, he hates it. And scripture says so. But here's the thing. We can be angry and not sin. That's what scripture encourages us to do. And that gentleness, this word priorities really points in at that gentleness that is that midway point. But I think it's better defined to say that gentleness is self-control that's God-empowered. Self-control that's God-empowered. It's being in control of your emotions and your feelings. And that power is not coming from you. Because we're pretty terrible at controlling our emotions and our feelings. But when we're God-empowered, we find that balance perfectly in him. The manifestation of God-fearing anger should be strength and gentleness, proper balanced. I'll say that again. The manifestation of God-fearing anger should be strength and gentleness, properly balanced. So many things in our life are this way. We overreact on the right or the left, and God is trying to seek to find us to find a balance in him in the middle. He adds another one. Here's another pair of socks to put on. Patience. Um, in an Amazon-dominated speed ticket-inducing, don't you dare buffer on me, entertainment world. Um, I wouldn't say patience is something we excel at culturally. Okay, I'm pointing that out culturally. I know that you'd be like, well, people in ancient times weren't very patient. No, I understand that. Like, I mean, there's, people are impatient always, but I think that we recognize our own lack in our society. You know, we just don't want to wait for things. Um, I'm not very good at waiting. You know, Amazon Prime, are you kidding me? I want drone delivery. Like, you know, we, we, we kind of get to that. We get to that place now where we're like, <laughs> right? I mean, like, <laughs> and amen. But here, here's the point, you guys. We suffer from impatience, and I'm not saying that, you know, there could be some things very wrong about us not being okay with two-day delivery. Um, but but here's, here's my point in all of this. I think that that impatience bleeds into a lot of situations in our lives. I think that impatience bleeds into us, especially when we want to see change either in ourselves 
that God is sanctifying, walking us through some changes. I'm not saying make excuses for your sin, but sometimes we want to see instant change in ourselves. You ever been really frustrated with where you are and want to be in a different place? I have. And we get really frustrated in walking that path out as the Lord changes us and molds us because you realize that if he just shoved us into this new thing, we would probably break. And so he is forming us and molding us, and a lot of times he's walking us down a path. Now think about this. When Jesus called the disciples to himself, was there an instant change in their life? In a way, there was. In a way, there was. They came to Jesus, they recognized him, and they started walking with him. The instant change in their life was they were going to spend all their time with him now and leave their old professions behind. So in a way, there was. But did they change as people? Read the, the Gospels. They were pills. I mean, they were a problem all the way up to the upper room, you know, and after, you know, Paul dealing with Peter and his, and his, you know, his hypocrisy and all this stuff as you read about. But when you think about this, think about even Peter in the upper room, three to three and a half years of public ministry with Jesus, discipleship. Jesus comes to Peter to wash his feet. You're not touching my feet. Peter, if you don't let me wash your feet, you have no part with me. Give me a bath. No, that'd be weird and gross. He didn't say that. But what he did say was this. He's like, you don't need a bath. You're clean, but your feet are dirty. And Jesus was making a very specific point. And what we see in that is this. Peter was still a work in progress. Peter was still a work in progress. And do you know what helps along that a work in progress, both in the way we deal with our own lives and how we deal with others, is patience. Patience and endurance. And we'll see it in the next one, bearing with being long-suffering. These are hard things. These are difficult things. But you guys, it is an earmark of a believer to be patient. It's a characteristic of a believer to be patient. It's a garment that we wear. And how inaccurate is it for us to be impatient when we're the image bearers of the most patient being that ever lived? He is the most patient being that has ever lived, and we are his image bearers. We represent him. And so when we are impatient, we misrepresent him. That's not condemnation. Take off that impatience and put on patience. It represents Christ. And I want to note this as well. I called out some very practical, real-world things. You're like, okay, I can be patient with that, that product or whatever. You realize that God wants to take us to the point of being patient with people that are stabbing us in the back, that are insulting us, that are accusing us, that hate us. He wants us to be long-suffering towards them, patient towards them, loving towards them. That's the example that he gave us, and that's the one that we follow. We'll talk about forgiveness in just a second. So his next thing is bear with and forgive. And we not only bear with or patiently restrain ourselves, right? Notice the patient restraint. We've all shown restraint, you know, like that kind of restraint that's like every fiber of my being wants to kill you. You know, like, but, but I'm not going to because I'm gracious. But like he says patient restraint, doing it with the right attitude. Forbearing with somebody doesn't mean just not doing what you want to do. It means doing it, not doing it with the right attitude. You know, you always hear mom and dad, do it with the right attitude. I'll tell you this, don't do it with the right attitude right? Holding back sometimes is the most difficult thing that we can do. Restraint is hard. It's like hernia inducing. Like it's really, really difficult. But if you think about this, we are called as a characteristic of our belief to be patiently restraining ourselves and to let it go. 
to forgive. How, Paul? How are we supposed to forgive? Asked Mike. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. That scale is so astronomical, it's really hard to get your, your mind around it, at least for me. It is really hard for me to get my mind around forgiveness on the scale of how God has forgiven me. It's really hard to think about. And when I think about applying that, that this isn't just a reminder of how much we've been forgiven, which it is, but that it's a call to forgive in the same way. How in the world are we ever going to do that unless we're empowered by the Holy Spirit? Unless God is empowering us to do it. Because I tell you what, I have a hard enough time, you know, surfacy forgiving people. But if this isn't the way that Christ has forgiven me, we are on a scale that is just unheard of. There are so many places in the word that recall this type of forgiveness. And God's reminded us in so many different ways, but the one that came to mind for me was 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 through 19. Everything is from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Notice this part. That is in Christ, in Christ. God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Notice here both the situation, we were trespassers, and we're given forgiveness, and the method in Christ. Situation, transgressors. Method in Christ. Where are we right now, according to Paul in Colossians 3.11? We're in Christ. Christ is all and in all. We have the key to what we need to get done here already in Christ. And he says this, what does it look like? We don't count people's trespasses against them. A trespass, in this sense, is someone who knowingly and willingly did something. Here's the point, church. It doesn't matter what the intent behind that action was. What matters is that you forgive as Christ has forgiven you. That you reflect that characteristic of his nature in forgiveness. You can't do it without the Spirit. And I hope you realize that sometimes when we let things go or we ask for forgiveness or we want to forgive, that we actually go through a process. I don't know if you guys have been through this, but this is something that the Lord really has encouraged me through. I felt like so many times when my pastor growing up as a kid would talk about coming to the Lord and asking for forgiveness, I was praying the same prayer about the same situation and the same person. What I didn't think about in that moment is that we need to come to the Lord regularly when that unforgiveness crops up in our heart and it could be over the same situation that unforgiveness could be popping up over the same thing that it has for years and years on end and the lord expects us to continue when that desire to sin that temptation to not be forgiving come up that you forgive them again and again as he said to peter should i just you know lord you know forgive them seven times and jesus said no seven times 70 and while peter tried to do the math and get the stones together jesus is like you're missing the point it's not about counting how many times. It's about forgiving them over and over and over and over again. That's how forgiveness works. Especially those who have wronged us, church, for that. That kind of forgiveness, the way that Christ we us, reflects his nature. We forgive in that way, we reflect his character. 
And that's what we're here to do. And so Paul ties it all together, and he says, above all, put on love. Above all of it, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Think about this. All of those things that we just talked about, and he says, above all that, put on love. Because if you put on love, and you're walking in the love of Christ, and you're doing things the way that he does them, and his love is pouring into you and pouring out, do you know what you're going to naturally just start wearing? Compassion, kindness, gentleness, patience, forbearing, forgiveness, all that stuff you're just going to start putting on. Because if his love is superseding all the other things in our lives, those other things will come with it because love ties them all together. Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is the motor in this this vehicle. But love is holding it all together. His love is holding everything together. It's tying everything together. And that above all statement should cause us to pause and realize that the bond that holds us together when all our differences should separate us is love. When the world looks at us and says there's no reason those people should be spending time together, the thing that holds us together is love. The thing that holds us together is not just love for the Lord. We all love, we, I don't think anyone here would be like, I don't really love the Lord that much. I hope that's not the case. If it is, let's talk about that. But I think most of us would be like, we love the Lord. That's why we're here. We want to we worship and reflect him. You realize that the love that you have for him is not just vertical, but should naturally go horizontal to your fellow. It should naturally go to each other, which means that we will be bound together by that love, which means we stick it out together, guys, even when we don't like each other. We walk through this together. We deal with our stuff. And if we're forgiving, if we're showing kindness, compassion, do you see all this ties together? It's like we can move on. We can move past things that we've had. We can move on and past things that we, the issues that we've had in, 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 in prior situations. Right now, we don't have to wait for that. God offers that now. We can move on. And here's the thing. It's so important that we move on because love is the witness of Christ visible in words and actions alike. And in the upper room, after the whole feet washing thing, and then Jesus dismisses Judas, and now he's just talking to his disciples. John 13, 34 through 35, he says, I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The world is going to know that we're followers of Christ by our love for each other not by signage not by fanfare not by entertainment not by musical style not by my weird teaching style none of that they are going to know that we are his disciples by how much we love on each other it's the evidence it's the evidence that's irrefutable and when the body loves each other in spite of their differences the world sits up and takes notice The world will take notice when we love each other the way that Christ has loved us. And that's the comparison again. First, we're to forgive like he forgives. And here in John chapter 13, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. Jesus goes, I am going to empower you. He talks about it via the Holy Spirit in John 16. I'm going to empower you, and you are going to love each other. That's your commandment. That's the commandment I give to you. This is the new one. Love one another. Stick with each other. Forbear. Forgive. Have compassion. Show mercy. All of these things. Be patient with each other. How do we show a world that defines love so wrongly what true love looks like, church? How do we show them? We know that putting all these things on that we just read here at the start is just the beginning. 
It's just the beginning. You get dressed at the beginning of the day, I hope. You know, you get up in the morning, what do you do? I get dressed. You know, like that's before you go out, I get dressed, I put my things on. You think about these garments, the ideas that Paul's explaining here. This is what you put on before you what? Before you go to work. These are the things that you wear before you go to do what you're called to do. And if we are going to see change in our world, we got to put this stuff on before we go. We have to equip ourselves and garment ourselves in this before we go. Before we can live it out there. And so he tells us this in verse 15. He continues, says, And let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching, admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We'll wrap this up quickly because you can read that and get it. Like, I love it when you read scripture. It's just like, well, that's easy. You know, sometimes it's not the case. It takes study. And, but when Paul explains it like that, it's like, well, the doing is going to be hard, but that makes a lot of sense. What's interesting about this is when you read, let the peace of Christ, to which you are also called in one body, rule your hearts, he's saying this, let the peace of Christ be the umpire of your heart. He's using an athletic term. If you look at the language, he's saying, let the peace of Christ umpire your heart. Here's what he means by that. The verb is used from the athletic arena, and when the feelings in our heart are clashing, we turn to the decision of Christ, knowing that he will direct us in love and bring unity. We look to Jesus and go, I don't know. You know, it's just like, you know, date night. Where do you want to eat? I don't know. You know, like half the time it's like that, that we're in this place, like I don't know what to do with all this stuff that's in my head. Do you ever feel like it's just cluttered so much and like there's papers flying everywhere and there's a couple small fires and like there's just so much going on in our lives. Like I just can't keep it all together and your eye starts looking that direction. Your wife's like, wow, that's weird. You guys, here's the thing. When we are in that place, just feeling overloaded, the feelings are going everywhere. We don't know how to handle the situations that life is just throwing at us. We look to Jesus. We look to Christ to be the one who decides. Lord, what's valid, what's not? He goes, he's out at third. You're up to bat. You got two strikes. You know, like, that, that's how it is. Like, he's like, this is how this works. This is the situation. We let him rule. We let him decide. And listen to this. We let the peace of Christ do this. Do you realize that when we let Jesus rule in those situations over our feelings, over our emotions, the stuff that's going on in our lives, he brings peace. It's peace. Do you wonder sometimes where your peace is, where your rest is, maybe it's because you're trying to get in between this bout of your feelings and you're getting beat up in the crossfire. And you need to go to Jesus and say, would you just define this? Would you be the one who decides? You're like, well, how will I know what he's deciding? Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you. How do you know what Jesus says to the issues that you're going through? He has told you in his word. He's told you what is valid and what is not. He says, let it dwell richly among you. 
in wisdom, teaching, and admonish one another. Once you are at peace, once you let the peace of Christ rule your heart, then encourage one another through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. One of the earliest descriptions of a church service comes from Pliny, uh, the Roman governor of Bithynia. He sent a report of the activities of the Christians to Trajan, um, which is really interesting. I'm sure all of you have read this. I was like, what? I'm like reading all this about Roman emperors talking to each other. And he said this about the Christians. They meet at dawn to sing a hymn to Christ as God. One of his earliest correspondents, he goes, this is their practice. They'll get together in the morning and they'll sing. Hmm. It's interesting, isn't it? And as a worship leader, I often have shared this passage of scripture you know, to people about singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs. We are steeped in tradition and singing songs to the Lord. But here's something that I notice about this, and you should too. When Paul's talking about this, he says, let the word of Christ dwell richly among you. This is in connection. In all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. What does that mean our psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs must do? They must be theologically true. They must be accurate. They must speak the truth about God. They need to be the product of rich, indwelt, biblical truth. And that's why every song that we sing, I will take and pour through a filter called Scripture. And if it doesn't make it out the other side, we don't sing it. And there's plenty of songs out there that people are like, oh, I just love this song. I'm like, yeah, great hook, great tune. I'm a musician. I'm digging it. But that's not true. That's not accurate. That's not what the Bible says. And we have to understand that. We have to understand that we pour these things through Scripture. Our psalms, our hymns, our songs, they're multifaceted ways for us to praise him. They're different ways for us to praise him, but we should be singing to the Lord as an expression. And whatever you do, I like it when Paul's like, here's some practical things. Here's some things you should be doing. Here's some things you need to put on. He goes, you know what? Whatever you do just kind of encompasses everything in your life. Whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. I'll tell you this, if you have this mindset that you're going to say in the name of the Lord Jesus and then do what you're doing, it makes it really hard to sin. Because we feel really comfortable disconnecting ourselves from the Lord when we sin. But if we're thinking about it in terms of in the name of the Lord Jesus, I'm not going to say that, right? A little bit of restraint comes with that. A little bit of extra thought goes into something if we consider everything that we do, whether in word or in deed, to be done in the name of the Lord. That should make us stop what we're doing and think about the ramifications of it because this is reality. What we are doing represents him whether we like it or not. As Christians, everything that we're doing in word or in deed is representing Christ. Now, in closing, did you notice my omission? Verses 15 through 17. I left something out on purpose. Paul references something three times, once in each verse. I want you to look at this with me. And we'll close with this. I'll read it from verse 15 down through 17. I'll go fast, but I'm going to slow down for the things that I skipped because I covered everything but these. Let the peace of Christ, which you are also called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. One. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. 
And whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. If Paul repeats something three times, do you think he's making a point? Three separate times in three verses. Let me challenge you with this. A lack of gratitude is lack of relationship. If we lack gratitude towards the Lord, that doesn't mean you aren't saved. It means you're not close enough to him. Because I submit to you that the closer you get to the Lord, the closer you walk with him, the more his spirit fills you, the more his light shines on you, and you see him for who he is. Thankfulness should erupt from us like a volcano. Thankfulness should be pouring out of us at all times because when we recognize that we were dead in our trespasses and sin and he died for us at that time, when we could do nothing to save ourselves, he died for us then. He saved us from being dead. When I'm in a place where I'm recognizing that and fellowshipping with him, gratitude and thankfulness will be erupting from my life. Are we unthankful? Are we guilty of being unthankful? I'm not condemning you. I want you to get right up next to the Lord and recognize it. Get right up next to the Lord and just start letting that thankfulness flow. Because so often, that's the thing that rejuvenates me. That's the thing that brings me back to life again. I just start thanking God, start praising God. Little things like what he's done for Cole and Allie this week. Lord, thank you. You didn't have to do that. You didn't have to do that. We could have, I mean, that, no one would have been like, God is so unfaithful. If he hadn't, you know, used the, ta- the tax return to pay for this thing and, and what, what, what have you. We wouldn't have considered God unfaithful, but God did something so special and showed himself in such a cool way. It's like, thank you, that's so cool. You guys, you realize that we have salvation in Christ. We've been saved by him. We should be thanking him always in the good times and the bad. Even Job, who had lost so much, the Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Spirit-empowered believers, we can do this because he has given us his strength to do so. Let me give you one practical thing to do. You've heard it so many times, but I want to put it in different words. Don't have the concert first without tuning your instrument. Don't have the concert first without tuning your instrument. We go out there and we play every day. I'm not talking about play like catch the ball. I mean like we, we play our, our song. How many of us go out and don't think to tune the instrument until after we've started playing? As a musician, it's horrifying to think about. But, but here's the point in that. How many of us are not spending time in the word of God and in prayer so that we're in harmony with him before we go out? Get into harmony with the Lord. Synchronize yourself with him. And then the song that you play will be tuned to his key. Amen? Let's put these things on, church. Let's pray together. Lord, as we get to sing, Lord, as we talked about in this passage, it's, it's such a cool um, passage of scripture to, to read about. Um, Lord, singing to you and, and praising you in the ways that that you've given us the ability to, that that's a way that we admonish one another, we encourage one another, is to um, sing your praises. And, and God, I pray that we would do that as a body for each other. Lord, that we recognize that we sing to you for your glory. Worship is about you. 
and it's for you, but God, it also encourages the body to come together and to do it as one. It's an encouragement, Lord, for us horizontally as well as it is when we worship you, God, vertically. And so, God, as we just put you at the forefront of our minds and as we sing to you, I pray, God, that you would bless this church with a fresh filling of your Holy Spirit to be enabled and to be encouraged to put on the things that we've seen in your word. God, that because of you, Jesus, we are in you. All of these garments are in the closet. They're in the dresser. They're right there. Lord, help us to clean house, to put these things on fresh, and Lord, to be the body that you've called us to be so that the world will sit up and take notice because they're going to know we're your disciples because we love each other. Bind us together with these things. These are deep spiritual truths, Lord. Help us to grasp them, to walk them out.